Hey there, Jonathan Bailey Strong here, host of this podcast and founder of Spotlight Podcasting, the agency that does all the production behind the scenes for the show. Now, I wanted to let you know before we start that we are actively seeking guests for this podcast. So if you are or you know of an established consultant that's doing over six figures in business annually, please send them our way. All they have to do is head on over to leadersofconsulting.com forward slash guest. So welcome back to Leaders of Consulting, the show that brings you interviews with the experts in the trenches at the forefront of consulting, sharing their own perspectives, tips and resources they picked up along the way for your benefit. On this episode, we're joined by the Oracle of Organizational Psychology, Mark Prine, who consults with organizations on human capital management, which means helping them optimize for the selection, development, engagement, retention and leadership due diligence of employees through the use of people analytics, assessment, and psychology. So, Mark, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jonathan, and appreciate the generous introduction. Absolutely. So, Mark, I know you've uh, recently, as of the recording of this episode, you've recently celebrated your four-year anniversary since starting your, your consulting practice. So I'm quite curious if there's a, you know, going back to the beginning of that time, is there a unique approach or or tool or strategy that you wish you'd known all those four years ago that you think other consultants should know about? Great question. I think looking back at when I started my practice to now, uh, I tried to think more like the way that I thought when I was in a bigger firm, right? I had gone from a 35,000 person firm to a 50 person firm and then going out on my own. So you always think about the outbound sales. You always think about kind of running your own practice and that side of things but you don't think as much about helping, asking for help. And what I noticed, especially as COVID hit and a number of other things, I was getting most of my work through referrals and through my network and through previous clients. And there's nothing wrong with asking them for help and saying, hey, I know this is a weird time right now. You might not be able to use my services or need any help from me. Do you know anybody who does? And that shred of vulnerability and trust with your clients who probably have no issue of making an introduction, but they don't think about it, right? You're not always top of mind. And so I had plenty of clients who would say, sure, go through my LinkedIn and let me know who you'd want me to make an introduction to. And that led to incredible growth over the last two and a half years since the pandemic started. But it really took for me uh, you know, that place of being vulnerable. And I'm part of a, an entrepreneur's group that somebody said, Hey, this is what I did in the eighties. You know, when, uh, the stock market kind of took a huge dip in the mid eighties, when I was just starting out my business and it was something that I hadn't thought about. And it was something that was uncomfortable, but I did it and it worked. Yeah, absolutely. I love the way you also phrased that initially, because this is something also picked up from, uh, from, Michael Roderick, who's another uh, guest on the show, but he focuses a lot on sort of human relationships and and, and um, networking and making asks. But you started that off by saying, you know, hey, I know these are, you know, difficult times or unusual times because a lot of the time we don't know what people are going through. So actually having that added sort of emotional intelligence or awareness to actually say, hey, you know, I, I hope this is a good time or and just having that in the back of your mind is is important as well. Yeah. And I was doing that in April of 2020, right? Yeah. April and May of 2020, right? Two years ago from, 
you know, as, as we're speaking right now. And it was a really weird time and nobody knew it. And what I've noticed is that people didn't mind it and they were happy to do it. And I've continued to do that, right? As clients roll off and I finish one project or, uh, you know, take on a first project with a new client, I say, you know, if you know anybody who could use my services or that I should talk to, you know, I'd appreciate any kind of introduction. Absolutely. Yeah, I love that. I think also, you know, during times of pandemic, people know that things are difficult and they're more, you know, inclined to, they can be more inclined to, you know, actually lend a hand and help people out as well. They're thinking of that. That's top of mind for them. There's no reason why you shouldn't really ask people. And I was also wondering, um, as you think, of, you know, back over your work and your career, are there any books that stand out to you that had a big impact or, you know, were significant, maybe changed the way you think about the work that you do, uh, whether that's your, you know, your field of organizational psychology or whether it's to do with the practice of consulting? Yeah, sure. There, I'm looking back at a bookshelf right now. There's a few that have really stood out to me. And, and the first one uh, that I, I is kind of the the Bible of performance engineering and kind of human capital engineering in the workplace is, is Human Competence by Thomas Gilbert. And uh, it was something that I, I read uh, in graduate school. And, and it really talks about how you can have the best person in the world and the best team, but you put them in a bad environment and the environment's going to win every time. And so what are the things that you should be systemically thinking about within an environment that will help you to uh, actually, you know, enable your team to reach their potential. That's an interesting one. That's not a book I've heard of before, but sounds like a quite an interesting topic to dive into. Yeah, it's uh, it's you know kind of reads like a pseudo textbook, but is pretty approachable and mm. not too long. I recommend it. It's just something that really is good about understanding how different factors within an organizational environment will have a greater impact than the actual people. Whenever I come into an organization, a lot of the times, one of the first things that people say is, oh, they need training. You know, the competence in this, you know, group, they're, they're not smart enough or they can't do it. And these aren't the right people to do it. And when I really start to peel back the onion, it's, well, well, what are they actually incentivized to do, mm. right? Are you incentivizing bad behavior? Yeah. Are you giving people clear understanding of what what's required of them? Right. I spend a lot of time talking about things like a realistic job preview where, you know, there's a, a crazy phenomenon within psychology that if you tell somebody what you expect of them, they're more likely to do it. Right. It's mind blowing. But how often are people having these cryptic conversations with their boss? How often are people sitting in an interview and they're asking their hiring manager questions about the role? And there's, you know, they're being sold all of these things. And then when they walk in the first day, they're kind of like, well, you, you didn't tell me about that part, right? You didn't tell me about the thing that's 40% of my job. You didn't tell me about the thing that I was going to have to deal with, right? And, and there's nothing wrong with having jobs structured the way that we do. It's just making sure that you tell people what it is because there's a social contract that's being written as part of the uh, interview process, right? And, and there's a number of things that play a role in that. And if you're not upfront with somebody early on, and whether something's being hidden or whether something's not being talked about or whether something uh, just isn't emphasized as much as it is, making sure that people know exactly what they're signing up for will lead to an incredible amount of just unrecognized performance. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. 
what you describe also makes me think about how a lot of the time the the job titles that people have are often just labels or boxes to put people in so we kind of understand more or less what they do uh but the reality is that we're all multifaceted people and oftentimes a job title doesn't necessarily tell you about all the different facets of a role you're absolutely right and it's what percentage of somebody's job is are are those other tasks as assigned you know line that every single job description has right yeah. when when that other tasks assigned ends up being the majority of a role mm. uh, you might want to think about better defining your roles so yeah. that somebody knows this is what i expect and this is what i should be doing right i i did a a project in a manufacturing facility where um we were rewriting job descriptions building interview guides performance management really everything at the core of it and the previous job descriptions that were in this manufacturing facility were actually from two acquisitions prior mm. the company had been sold and bought twice since and most of the machinery and the methodology that was being talked about in the job descriptions were no longer in the facility right right so if if somebody and this was you know a unionized environment yeah. where somebody would say oh do that and the union employee would say well that's not my job and the manager would say what are you talking about it's not your job and they'd say well here's my job description doesn't say that there uh and and so you know that was a, a very kind of radical example but that probably happens in the majority of workplaces yeah interesting i'm just thinking of another example of uh something that may seem counterintuitive to a lot of people is like when i've actually hired for roles in my agency i've used job titles that are more intended to attract a certain type of person or applicant rather than necessarily what the the best title for the job would be i mean it's not something completely different but oftentimes you know i'll have something in the title then people show up for the interview and they're like i'm like thank you for applying now this is what the role really is you know even though you know the job description does usually match you know what i'm looking for that job title may uh give people a different idea of what they're actually applying for sometimes yeah and we're living i mean especially right now in the midst of this great resignation or the great reshuffling mm-hmm. um we're in this really big push and pull where you are trying to sell a candidate as much if not more than the candidate is trying to sell themselves to you mm-hmm. and it's really a place where they've got a little bit more power and control but how many hours of time are you spending when somebody walks in for that interview and they think that they're you know applying for a job that's completely different than maybe they thought right and and there's kind of that realistic job preview and that social contract starts right when when they first hear about the job when they first understand it right our organizational socialization as it's called right which is how we learn the ropes how we um kind of become a member of an organization right that starts prior to the interview right that like onboarding starts before onboarding starts right if you know you are currently um you know decently onboarded to work at a job at Coca-Cola right because you know it and you have an impression of it and there's something that you think about when you kind of step foot and so if you were interviewing for a job there you would already have some kind of predetermined understanding of what it would be like within that organization because you know what they value what they care about and how they lead and so when you're you know as small business owners as we are right when we have somebody coming in and you know they have a different understanding it's yeah it's how do we balance that selling uh them versus selecting them 
Yeah, yeah, because they don't have that added context that they would have. Yes, absolutely. More well-known brands, absolutely. And if we just um, now focus a little more on, you know, the clients that you serve and the expertise that you provide, can you tell me more about what that ideal, you know, what are some kind of ideal or typical clients that you work with and how do you typically find them or do they find you? Sure. Great question. So a lot of the work that I do is within private equity, venture capital, mm-hmm. and hedge funds. Working with the fund, sometimes it'll start on the acquisition of a, of a platform company. And you know the private equity fund, they, they know that they're betting on the jockey as much as they're betting on the horse. And so I'll participate in that due diligence and really help understand you know, this company and, the, and these founders grew it to $50 million. Can they grow it to $150 million? Are, are these the right people in the right places? You know, after due diligence, I'll do a lot of work with, and this kind of is is where it goes anywhere within larger organizations, smaller organizations of, you know, who's the best person to hire, succession planning, we have a turnover problem, figure out what's wrong and fix it. And so how do we really think critically and use data to make decisions about people, right? Uh, Do they have a career ladder so that they know where it is that they're going? Um, Do they have some kind of standardized way, right? As you grow your organization, the center of influence gets expanded. I do a lot of work with some of these organizations that they're growing so fast. And it used to be that the three founders interviewed everybody. And so it was really easy to have that, you know, consistent culture because you had the same people interviewing. But now the CEO is, you know, or the co-founders are two layers away from the hiring manager. So how do you know that the hiring manager is always making the same decisions so that culture is actually something that is you know being nurtured and being continued on and you're making the same those same decisions. Mm. It's interesting. Yeah, the whole topic of mergers and acquisitions is I find it fascinating. And I'm curious like do you ever find yourself challenged with internal politics in an organization where maybe you're making recommendation that I'm um, you know, sort of thinking to maybe an instance where a company was acquired and they've got a brilliant founding team that would be well positioned to maybe head a division. But because of internal politics, the hierarchy and the existing kind of entrenched dynamics mean that maybe that person won't get that top job. It will go to someone else who's kind of, you know, in cahoots with the, uh, with the top brass. Are there instances like that, or is, is that something you come across less? Yeah, absolutely. Finding a way to navigate the situation in the environment is a, a big part of my job, right? And mm. helping to, you know, the, that's the integration part of the merger and integration, right? How do we actually come out of this on the other end and hit that multiple that the investor is looking for? Yeah. Uh, and, and that happens regularly, right? And a lot of the times it'll be a founder who's selling and they haven't had a boss for 20 years. Yeah. Or, you know, the investors have an idea of what they want to do with this product. And it's like you're telling that founder that their baby's ugly, right? Or, yeah. or grandpa built that exactly the way that it's been. And, and so that's where after some of the assessment and after some of the things that I'll do, right, there's actually transition planning. It's rolling up my sleeves with the founders and with the investors and saying, well, how do we get from point A to point B? Right, whether that be coaching, whether that be communication plans that trickle down throughout the entire organization, uh, whether that be change management and really identifying, well, what are these key blockers that are going to get in the way and how do we navigate them? 
you know, I'm a big proponent of taking evidence-based empirical research and putting it to work in the organization, but you need to make sure that you bend and flex that research and those principles so that it works for the given environment, right? Because not every organization is going to be a one-size-fits-all and you need to know, well, these are where we're going to, you know, make some changes and some compromises. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's quite interesting. I, uh, at one time during my career, I was working with accelerators uh, doing office hours. And uh, I, I would meet a lot of founders. Uh, this was in, in London. So I would meet a lot of founders, particularly from e- Estonia, who were previous Skype employees. And uh, obviously, Skype got acquired by Microsoft. And it, I just found it, uh, you know, mind boggling how many talented ex-employees of Skype were disillusioned with the merger for whatever reason. And uh, I just thought, like, that's such a massive talent drain, you know, for Microsoft and other companies like that that go through that merger and acquisition process. You're absolutely right. Because, and, and the way that big companies do it, and the question is, are they buying IP or are they buying an organization, right? And mm-hmm. sometimes the way that it's done well is, is that organization will just kind of live on its own island and they will kind of continue as if, nothing happened and it would be more like a private equity investment than it would be an actual, you know, strategic acquisition that works sometimes. And that doesn't work other times. Right. And that's where I'll do that kind of culture assessment on the front end where, you know, a company might say, Hey, we're going to buy this other company, no matter what Uh, we want that IP. We want that product. We want that tool. It's just the approach to the integration that changes. And in what way are those employees shown the opportunities that they now have working for that Microsoft, right? How many of those employees were shown the different career paths that they now have while working for this larger organization, while still being maybe able to have that same ownership over the product that they did in the past? Yeah. Well, I'm glad there are people like you who are sort of smoothing the path for people a little bit. Um, I, I think back to my experience as well. I, I uh, used to work for a company called Softlayer, uh, basically ran uh, cloud servers and, and um, yeah, basically provided hosting. And they were acquired by IBM. And uh, there was a very obvious culture clash, uh, particularly within the, the division. I, w- I was working on their startup program. Um, so I was going out and talking to, to startups. And just our incentives were just very, the way that we, we approached things was just very different from our IBM counterparts. And even though the, like you say, you know, the strategically, I knew that acquisition made absolute sense, but it was just this really difficult, you know, process of getting people aligned, uh, you know, in IBM. That was, that was a, definitely a big challenge. Yeah. And, and you, you hit on a key one, right? Is what are people incentivized to do, right? At the end mm-hmm. of the day, that that's a, an important part of it, right? And it's not always monetary and it's not always you know, recognition or titles, but it's just what types of behaviors are promoted? What are the things that we should be doing, right? And, and we talk about the idea of culture and we've hit on that kind of a, a couple times already. The idea of corporate culture has been completely misconstrued by Silicon Valley and, and kind of popular management, right? When we think about culture, mm. a lot of the times people think about, you know, beer kegs and ping pong tables and we wear jeans on Friday, right? That's not culture, Right. Culture is, as it's defined in academia, is how do a group of people make decisions? How do a group of people hold each other accountable? How do a group of people get things done? And what what do they do to service their clients? Right. Those shared behaviors, you know, kind of a combination of competencies 
that's what it, culture really is. And so if the two cultures are completely opposite of each other and there's no attempt to merge those cultures or at least change the culture of one to match the culture of the other, then of course you're going to have the friction and the turnover and all the things that you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. And speaking of, of culture, uh, there is something I picked up on your website and you talk about how there's this common saying that culture eats strategy. Like you may come up with this amazing strategy, but, but if it goes against the grain of the culture, the company culture, it's unlikely to stick. But I noticed that on your website, you say, ah, oh, well, that isn't always the case. So I'd love to kind of pick that apart and understand why you believe that's. Yeah. I, I mean, with the right amount of planning and the right thoughtfulness, culture should, you know, drive the strategy forward. If the strategy is, is the what we want to accomplish, your culture is this is how we're going to get there. And if you think about it in the right orders, right, and you align some of those motivators that I'm talking about, if you align some of those key behaviors towards the strategy, then the strategy is actually complemented and achieved by the culture. And, you know, when, when they're in two different places, the culture is going to win because that's the way that we've always done things, right? That's that's what you're mm -hmm. going to hear is, um, oh, we can't go into that market or we can't achieve those goals or we can't make that change because this is what we've always done, right? But if you then infuse some kind of nimbleness or analytical agility into the culture, and that's something that people start getting recognized for, and that's something that gets promoted internally, and that's something that you know really drive some of the workforce forward, then that strategy is going to need to be rewritten soon because it's already been achieved. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Um, there's another previous guest on the show, uh, Tom Critchlow, and he, he talks about um, one of the ways that he approaches dealing with, a, with an organizational culture is to first understand it and then understand what changes can be made that go with the grain of the culture that would be, they're basically low hanging fruit that can be implemented straight away and then other things that just go against the grain of the culture those slightly more tricky changes they can also be tackled but he takes a sort of a longer term approach to it and so he you know might try and seed ideas or have discussions with stakeholders but it will be a sort of a slower approach than some of those other changes yeah absolutely especially considering how long the company has been around or how long some of these practices, right? Mm -hmm. You know, in change science, we talk about it like an ice cube or a block of ice, right? You melt the ice cube, you do whatever changes you want to it, and then you try to refreeze it, right? You know, the size of Microsoft's ice cube versus the size of, you know, your firm's ice cube are going to be very different, right? Which one's going to mm -hmm. melt, melt quicker? Which one's going to be more nimble? Which one's going to be able to happen in uh, greater success and in greater speed. And I also push back in terms of like, it's not always changing the culture in order to, to achieve those goals, right? It's how can we achieve the goals without necessarily, you know, how can we make this goal work for us, right? How can we achieve things and change the plan and not the outcome, mm -hmm. right? And that approach, because that that's something is we come up with a strategy and we say and we become very tunnel vision about it right this is how it's going to be done this is how we're going to get there these are what the steps are and that happens sometimes just because that's what the first idea or the best idea in the room is right but 
And that's where taking the strategy and the goals and saying, well, how can we achieve this through our culture is probably going to lead to more success than here's the strategy and here's how we're going to, you know, and thinking that the strategy and the culture kind of run parallel and not integrated with each other. Yeah. Yeah. The integration part is very important. Absolutely. And something else I'd like to bring up is that I've seen you mention a concept called the Peter Principle, mm -hmm. which, correct me if I'm, I'm paraphrasing this badly, but is the idea that people rise to their level of their own incompetence. So a lot of people describe this happening in management where people rise to the level of managers and then they don't go any higher than that because they basically reach their, their level of competence within an organization. Can you tell us a little bit more like what, why does that happen and what can organizations do to prevent it from happening? Sure. So it happens a lot because we think that in order to grow in our careers, we have to be managers and people leaders, just like you're saying, mm -hmm. right? Uh, in some tech firms get it right where they have two different career paths, right? That the the software engineer can keep growing as a software engineer. And then the people manager kind of grows parallel to that. And it's two different career tracks, right? You know, being a people manager is a completely different job. And we see this in sales, right? You're the best salesperson on the team. You're really crushing it and doing really well. Congratulations. We're going to promote you to sales manager. Um, now our team has lost our best salesperson and we have somebody who has no management skills to lead that team. And, and you know, I, I there, there are two different jobs and we don't think about it that way, right? We think about it as a natural progression versus actually thinking about it in terms of two different career tracks, right? We should be hiring and looking and retaining people and training them to be managers, but then we should also be promoting people to be just really good individual contributors who do the work and get it done. Uh, I, I use this, you know, this kind of parallel often. There was a, a comedian in the 90s uh, early 2000, Mitch Hedberg. I don't know if, if you know the name at all. And he would say how he hates being asked all the time to act on sitcoms. He's like, I'm a comedian. I'm a joke writer. It, it's like going to the best chef in the world and saying, can you grow me this potato? Right. The, the, the things might be related. They're ancillary. You can kind of see how they might kind of fit together but they're completely different skill sets. And so why are you asking somebody who's a, a really, really good chef to then become a farmer? It doesn't make sense. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting. And I know like a lot of your, your work focuses on, uh, you know, uses data related to managing people. I, I'm curious, like, are there any maybe less counterintuitive insights that came up or things that surprised you that maybe tell a different story from what, we're accustomed to hearing? Yeah, sometimes we think, and, and what, I'll, what I'll actually say is kind of the, the counterpoint, right? Where sometimes we mm. think that the highest, most complex and, and most you know interesting thing is going to be the right answer, right? We want big data. We want all of this information. We want AI-driven insights. And, and sometimes just the, the simple answer is right in front of your face and, and stop looking too far for it. You know, that, that's usually where the recommendations from me start is, okay, well, well, what is this information and why are people leaving? Okay, well, what, what kind of, you know, what kind of things are we hearing from the workforce that aren't being told, right? Most of the time, the, the management and the leadership team has been told over and over again what the problem is. They do all these employee surveys. They, you know, try to gather and collect all of this data. And you know what the problem is? That, you know, employees have been asked what their opinion is. 
and then nobody does anything about it, right? Mm. Um, we told you what the problem is. We said what, what was wrong. We said what we wanted different, and you didn't do anything about it. So now I'm going to leave, right? You, they were probably better off not asking the question in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm curious, like in that in that context, in that situation, how do you how does one get through to people if they haven't they've been told what they need to hear several times, but it's not quite getting. Yeah. Through. So at some point, I'll tell a client, stop asking the question if you're not going to do anything with the answer. Um, right. Yeah. If, you know, if you're, if you're going to do this engagement study every six months, every year, if you're going to track yeah. your ENPS scores or whatever it may be, whatever the kind of, uh, you know, stat du jour is, you know, happening, I say, then don't, yeah. don't ask the question if you're not going to do anything about it. Right. If, if you want to see the blips and the ups and the downs, great. But what, what are the simple things that you can do? Uh, and, and most of these things aren't huge projects. Right. Most of the time it's not re-engineering it. It's not, you know, completely, you know, reinvigorating your organization. It's not this huge expensive project. Usually it's, well, the managers know how to give good feedback, right? The managers have that realistic job preview or those core expectations, or is there ambiguity? Right. Some of those simple things that I mentioned earlier on, those are going to make the biggest differences. Right. All too often we see a huge price tag on a project and we think, you know, more expensive, that's going to have the bigger impact. Most of the time it's not. Yeah. Great. Well, Mark, uh, you know, these have been some fascinating insights around the decision making that goes on at, you know, larger organizations and all the insight that you bring when it relates to, you know, human capital and so forth. Your companies, I probably should have mentioned is MIP Consulting. And your website is mipconsultingllc.com. That that is correct. Excellent. Um, Do you want to share where people can also reach out to you or connect with you online? Yeah, sure. Uh, So my LinkedIn, Mark Prine, is a great place to find me. Uh, Email and and all all my information is updated and public there. Great. Fantastic. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for tuning in. And if you're interested in learning more about what it takes to launch a podcast as a consultant, including everything from positioning strategy to how to monetize, be sure to check out our other show appropriately named Podcasting for Consultants. You can find that by searching on just about any podcast player or at the website podcastingforconsultants.net. 